Alright, alright, we are about to plug in with Greg Camp, the phenomenal guitarist, lyricist, songwriter, and hit maker for the biggest songs of Smash Mouth. I mean, you'd have to have been living under a whole pile of rocks to have never heard this song. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. Even if you didn't see Shrek, man, that thing is and was ubiquitous and probably always will be. And speaking of Smash Mouth, the inspiration for this guitar hang was that we wanted to also celebrate the life and the great stories of Steve Harwell, Smash Mouth's lead singer who passed away on September 4th of this year. Wikipedia said liver complications, something like that. He had so much personality in every syllable. Total alpha rock star. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. So we'll celebrate that and also dive into Greg's brand new band called The Defiant. this great song dead language and a whole album you can check out today's episode is brought to you by guitar player magazine and guitarplayer.com guitar player play better sound better thank you gp So I'm out in Nashville, just played three shows with Jefferson Starship and the Nashville Symphony at the Shermerhorn Symphony Center. And then on day four, I'm like, I got to catch up with Greg and do this interview because we've been wanting to celebrate Steve Harwell's life. And also, I always wanted to talk to him in depth about his great guitar playing. You know, he's got that super cool, shagadelic, groovy sound. It's modern and classic at the same time. And boy, he's got a cool vintage rig he's going to plug in for you momentarily. So we had to celebrate all that, dive into Smash Mouth, dive into his new band. And also, I just wanted to understand how his songwriting brain works, because he's a rarity. Like, writing entire songs with all the lyrics and everything and having the band play them and them actually becoming hits is a cool thing. He told me, and this was actually as I was packing up, so the mics were already off, I'm wrapping up cables, and there's this one last tidbit that I thought I would share with you that's not in the interview where he says, you know what, Jude, I'm in the 5 a.m. club. I'm like, what's the 5 a.m. club? Is that like some kind of Nashville thing, a bunch of super guys or whatever? Because Nashville is just so happening. I had so much fun there meeting all these great musicians and, and also catching up with people I already knew. Jeff Marshall, Eddie Haddad, other great players. Just seeing great players all around town. Each one of them with the most killer tone, phrasing. Each of them knowing a million songs. I love Nashville. Guitar everywhere. But anyway, Greg is like, it's a very exclusive club. There's only one member, me. He's telling me all this. No one else is in the 5 a.m. club. I get up before the sun, before dawn, before my family awakes, before I've had even one crumb of breakfast or one drop of coffee, and I come out here to the studio 
and I write a song from scratch, start to finish, and I record some version of it. I think that's what Greg told me, but it was a very inspiring story. I think I got all the details right, but yeah, you know, he wants to tap in to the deepest part of his songwriting brain at least once a day, and that's a pretty noble mission if you're trying to be a great songwriter, which he is. So we're going to get started. Of course, we're going to talk about Steve Harwell. We're going to talk about The Defiant, Greg's new band. And we're also going to talk about this great producer who you may know named Eric Valentine. He's worked with many, many great bands. First hit album was with Third Eye Blind and then Smash Mouth and then so many other bands. Slash, Good Charlotte, I think uh, Queens of the Stone Age, Grace Potter. Eric is so dope, man. I just love what he brings to recordings. I like to joke that I did the last album he ever did that wasn't platinum. This was like the mid-90s. I'm like 24 years old, and we're with I was playing guitar with Daniel Adams, who's now a friend of mine over all these years. Great singer-songwriter, and Daniel's going to let us hear this unreleased song that we did with Eric. It sounded so great. I mean, just to make this about me for a second, I think all of us guitar players, if you uh, do any amount of recording, there's always that first time you find yourself in the studio with a great producer and you go in to the live room, put on some headphones, you go in to do your solo, and then you finish take one or whatever and you're like, all right, that was, uh, that was cool. I think I got some good ideas of what I want to do. Um, let's go for it and I'm going to you know, give it a real shot. This, this is going to be the real one now. And the producer says, nah, buddy, you're done. And that's how it was. I was like, on this particular song, I remember it was like, it was the end of the song, kind of a fade out guitar solo. I'm like, what? I mean, I barely got started. I could do so much more. R- really? I really wanted to go and take a stab at tape two, take two. You know, this was two inch tape too. So there, it's not like you have infinite undos or stack 27 different takes together. It's like, nah, man, that's it. That's all it needs. Yeah, he mixed it way back. Yeah, getting some extra sustain from one of those old blue Boss compressor pedals. Through like a magnetone amp. A lot of room mic from a distance. Listening back now, all these years later, he's so right. Like it's just it's a vibe. Anyway, we're going over to Greg's studio. He's gonna plug in this killer rig. I'm playing my music man guitar through a rolling cube amp, and it's a really cool hang. And uh, oh by the way, at one point I talk about the shadows, and of course I mean Hank Marvin in the shadows. Gotta mention Hank, one of my favorite Stratocaster masters of all time. Again, thanks to Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com for making this happen. Let's fire up the copter for that long flight to Nashville. Keep it alive to you, 95. So, um, dude, I don't know how do we even begin. Well, we, we begin by me apologizing for lagging for so long. <laughs> um, this studio has... Had and this house that we're uh, staying at has had really bad electrical issues, and so lots of hums and buzzes going on. And I've just grown to like them, you know. Hey, that's not too bad today. 
Was anything sounds good through like a magnetone and a vintage Fender? <laughs> and this is actually a Sears Silvertone. A Silvertone. Yeah, and then uh. the cabinet um, just has a couple gen- old Jensens in it, and I sent away for the cabinet and threw them in there quickly when I moved yeah. to Nashville so I could have something. And this is an old Dual Showman Fender Dual Showman. Incredible. So we hear a little bit. I when you just turned it on for a second, I heard the most. I obviously, obviously like a lot of reverb because I play like surf music a lot. That is glorious. I mean, I was always fascinated with that, the way that you came out and when I, when the world discovered you, it was Smash Mouth, and you take this, this, there's obviously new ska punk sound, but you take these old sounds that I always think of like 60s lounge, spaghetti western, surf music, and kind of made it sound new. Where does all those, where do those influences come from? How'd you put that all together? Probably the gentleman that you just met at the door, my father, um, you know, that my, my parents loved listening to, to records, and so I grew up with a lot of great you know, 50s, 60s, 70s vinyl in the house. And um, so I guess a lot of that came from that. I didn't realize what surf music was until way later in life, but I remember yeah. my favorite thing was Hawaii Five-0, the theme. Yeah. And it wasn't the guitar, it was actually the drums. Yeah. And so, and I was a drummer first, and then when I transitioned into guitar, I just kind of gravitated towards that 60s surf music, you know, and even the Beach Boys and things like that. Yeah. Was any licks that you used to like to play that on the guitar with this kind of a sound when you were coming up or I loved the 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 TV show themes I think was my yeah. <laughs> big influence I'm trying to think of something. I love all this. What was that? The Shadows. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're cool. You know, the only Shadows album I have is a live one. You know, but yeah. Yeah. He would play all this stuff, cool stuff. I mean, now I got to kind of sound like... Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I love that stuff. But so, yeah, back to what you were saying, by the way, it's really cool that we were unable to do it earlier because, you know, we lost Steve Harwell, singer of Smash Mouth, and it's been a couple months now, mm-hmm. three months, two months, I don't know. I can't remember the date. I'm sure you do, but, and we were going to try to do something timely over Zoom, but now I'm here in Nashville and we're in person, which is so much cooler, man. I'm hearing this glorious sound. So I think it was meant to be that way. Probably. I, I prefer this, yeah. you know. But. And we have a common friend, Eric Valentine, the mm-hmm. great producer, who I think his first big hit record was not the one that I did with him, which is still kind of unreleased, but it's really cool. Which one was that? Well, this guy, uh, Daniel Adams, is his name nowadays. And Man, we just did some really cool shit, like the song called Walking on, not Walking on Sun, called Sun and Moon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Walking on the Sun is obviously what I, probably the first song I'd like to talk to you about. 
Sun and Moon. I mean, he had that place in, I mean, first of all. HOS. Yeah, HOS, hunk of shit studios <laughs> or barefoot studios, uh-huh. whatever you call it. It was like a, um, I would say, an old mechanics garage or something, something like that. Yeah. In Redwood City, it's probably like holding servers for Google now or something. That probably. But yeah, we would get incredible sounds. And I remember at the beginning of that song, I was he had me playing these like percussive things that you sw- swing oh, around yeah. and they're uh-huh. all. Uh-huh. And we do all kinds like of like a hose. Shows. Yeah. two-inch tape, mm-hmm. everything, and he would spend two days on a guitar sound. Oh, I've seen him walk around the room for two days with a snare drum, hitting it in different corners and spaces and yeah. until he found the sweet spot, and then that's where the drummer would have to set up, no matter where that was, you know? Yeah, I loved it, <laughs> and all his guitars would be lying on their backs on, around the studio, because mm-hmm. you don't want a guitar stand where they could fall over. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, cables everywhere. You know, I mean, it, when he when it was just him and he didn't have an assistant or anything, the place was just a complete mess. Yeah, you know? that's right. But um, I don't know if you know this, but um, speaking of assistant, we're sitting in the room. This studio was Busby's studio. Oh wow! Great songwriter and old friend of mine, and I met him through Eric Valentine. He was yeah. he was the coffee boy at Eric, at at HOS. I think I forgot that, but you know, I, I did a I did one song with Busby. Oh, did you? Yeah, man. Yeah. This was his space. He he developed and wrote Marin Morris stuff in this room. She lived down the street. Um, Keith Urban has done his stuff in this room. He's written with everybody. This was his space. Incredible. So, yeah. I'm blown away. Yeah. Yeah, and rest his soul, man. Yes, Shit. for sure. He he went on to some huge, huge Incredible. stuff, obviously. And Eric, I think maybe his thing, Eric Valentine, was the first one that he really blew up with was probably Third Eye Blind. Mm-hmm. But then immediately after that came Smash Mouth. Right. And Walking on the Sun was the first single I remember, and I think that was the first thing that broke you guys. Yeah. Tell us, I'm sure you've told this story before, but how much truth is there to the legend that he found it in a garbage can or something? Well, he didn't, Eric didn't. Our original drummer, Kevin, found it in a shoebox. So don't delay, act now, supplies are running out. A 
developing songs writing songs and stuff and he's like do you have any other songs laying around I know you write constantly Greg you know what else do you have and I said well here's here's a bunch of songs that nobody likes in this box on cassettes you know and he went through it and the next day he came bursting into my house with the cassette he's all this is the song Why didn't you show us this one? And I was under the impression that it sucked because that's what I was told. So, so you never know. You never know. And you know, I'm reading Rick Rubin's book, and he—it's you know many many years too late to learn this, but you just got to make yourself happy. And if you think it's good, it's good. You know, if someone else doesn't like it, it's okay. You know, someone's probably—if you like it and you think it's good, I'm sure someone else will, unless you have really really bad taste. <laughs> right. So what was your original kind of part on the guitar for that? Like, um, I'm going to have to turn some of these bubble machines down because uh, it's pretty cranky. So I think originally, the original recording of it was... Um, so like, were you doing like four tracks back then or something? Yeah, or? I had a four yeah. track. And, um, and it, it, the original recording of it was like this sort of Latin loop that I had on a record and I just like you know on four track just basically built the loop over and over and over and over until it was a full drum beat and then it had a, a, a nylon string guitar just going almost like she's got it you know baby she's got it like that sort of yeah thing many songs yeah and um and then that weird riff you know the sort of Sounded a lot more like this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'll do that. play that again. I'll which which part? Where you just play it, and I'll play like those little chords on this little, this little rolling cube amp right here. Two, three. tones of all time like you say like digging your scene Well, um, yeah, we just park it. You just park it in a in that really awful snorty zone. Yeah. So it's just sort of in the middle of nothing, yeah. you know. But then you've got some. Is it just a distortion? It's like, to me, it always sounds like a fuzz. It is a fuzz, and I don't have my um, 
my old um, Russian fuzz hooked up at the moment. But uh, and I think what happened was, you know, Eric really designed that guitar sound, and it was through the silver tone. Um, it had a fuzz, an old fuzz face uh, right. uh, fuzz pedal, and then the wah wah pedal, which was kind of parked. And his story goes, the fuzz face battery was at like really low voltage and so it was really extra farty yeah. that day and we just captured that sound i believe he just um you know compressed the heck out of it with probably a distressor or something and that's how we got it amazing so and then so many other songs too that that sound appears on i guess i don't know morning comes is it kind of yeah cool signature you got going there yeah that one's like you know i don't have the fuzz hooked up but that was kind of how we got that sound but with a with a fuzz face actually I couldn't take the fuzz face on tour because it was his and it was old. So I ended up, you know, getting a fuzz factory yeah. pedal, From which was uh, out of control. Yeah. Was that a way, is that a way huge? Fuzz factory. Is that the little, oh, man, those guys, they make those really odd pedals. I can't remember the name painting of on them. Yeah. Yeah. I love those things I got like a lo-fi loop thinging Zvex. Half of my stuff is in LA and half of my stuff is here. So, so, I want to hear about Steve Harwell mm-hmm. and then, of course, get back into all this songwriting and all this other stuff and some of the formulas for your songs that you put, how you put it all together. But first, we also have to talk about your new band, The Defiant. Okay. I, mean, I hear like the single uh, Dead Language. To me, that sounds a lot like Greg Camp. Mm-hmm. You want to tell us about the band, first yes. of all? And then, uh, that, yes, I'll, and I'll try to keep song. it short because it's yeah. like it's very involved. But, um, I've known Dickie Barrett for years, and I've known Joey LaRocca, who's from the Briggs, for years. Dickie Barrett's from the Mighty Mighty Boston's, of course. And he's a front man, yep. singer. He was a singer, um, and uh, Pete Parada was in was the drummer for The Offspring, and Johnny Rio was the bassist for many bands, one of them being the Street Dogs. Yes. Um, a friend of ours called me one day and just said, hey, have you talked to Dickie lately? And I said, no. He said, why don't you give him a call? I think you guys should get something going you guys are both in between bands at the moment and so i gave him a call and he had already been talking to pete parada about putting something together and um uh, this friend of ours joe sib just said hey just just get like five songs together by you know just in in like a couple months let's just get five songs together we'll start there and so he was kind of like our cheerleader you know and we had five songs together within a week and I sent them a couple songs that were finished. One of them was Dead Language. The other one was called These Shoes. And then that was, those were sort of the blueprint for the band. And we just, we were off and running. You know, I would send Dickie some chords and a melody, and he would send me lyrics on his uh, cell phone, you know, within a day. And I would pop those into a session in Pro Tools, and all of a sudden we had, you know, 30 songs. Did you write the lyrics too for Dead Language? I did. Because I love that about you is that you actually are a complete songwriter, which is pretty rare to write the whole thing as a lead guitarist. Melody, lyrics, 
selfish and and I'm, I might be a little of a narcissist. <laughs> that might be true, but there's a million and a of control those. freak. <laughs> but but to actually band, pull it off and make it successful. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in Smash Mouth, I was the primary songwriter, but those guys contributed in other ways. They, everyone played a role in that band, and, and Paul Delisle's a fine songwriter as well. But for this band, it's like, it's so much easier. I never thought it would be so easy to be in a band because everybody writes in this band. Everybody creates something, everybody brings something amazing to the table and that's what has made this sound, yeah. All right, well you scratched your way up out of the San Jose club scene or whatever and and now you're on a level where you can, you've met all these people, toured for years and all these dogs that you know from the 90s on forward. Uh -huh. But I also really liked your actual style, like this, you know, just the way you put words together is always really entertaining to me. Some some of it's kind of like the dead language has some kind of jaded turns of phrase or just like, you know, what, crawl from the curb to the door and have a conversation with the living room floor or whatever it is. Or, mm -hmm. I mean, people can listen to this song and the words really fit together and really come at you. Yeah. Well, I think the, the that song speaks loudly because of the uh, the electronics pandemic you know like everybody is just so addicted to their phones yeah. including me you know yeah. but it's just it's the way we communicate now and it's hard to actually be face to face with some people have a problem being face to face with people especially after the real pandemic that happened yeah, especially if they like miss fourth and fifth grade and because of the pandemic and they're <laughs> they, their it, phones yeah it's or their babysitters it's rough for people yeah, well, I think you capture a lot of that in that song, and that's really cool. So now take us back to Walking on the Sun. You've got this whole thing. There's a lot of syllables, a lot <laughs> of words. They all fit together perfectly. What's it like teaching Steve Harwell these like for that song? And I know he recruited you for the band yeah. when you guys were forming it. Well, that that one was, was not difficult at all, I don't think, for him because he was a rapper. And, yeah. so, and that song started as sort of a, a rap song. You know, it wasn't sung. It was, it was rapped. Ah, and um, you know, I believe that it had a few melodies that, and I believe it was Eric Valentine that said, yeah. "You need more of that in that song, and not so much, you know, in your face yelling at us. You know, let's let's get a melody yeah. happening." And so I took the melody that I had had from the solo, and made that yeah. the melody of the verses. Yeah, there's a lot of cool. I mean, even the main melody. Whatever key that's in. I mean, that's a really kind of a cool angular melody. And it, sometimes being the guitar player, I feel like we can write certain melodies that singers wouldn't typically come up with. A little yeah. more intervallic or something. Versa. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's interesting when any anyone else in the band writes something that's not the singer. It's like it adds a little something, a little curveball. And if the singer isn't musical himself or herself... You know, that's also really unique, you know, right. something so, that you would have never thought of, you know, coming out of their mouth. When did um, you, what was your first inspiration to start writing songs? I mean, is there... Elton John. Yeah. Yeah. I knew when I was a kid that, you know, there was something special about the words in Elton John songs, not just the music and his, you know, flamboyance. And like, when you're a kid, you're like, that guy's a real rock star. Look at him, you know? Yeah. But um, the lyrics just were just crazy. In Captain Fantastic, they had those booklets 
in there, you know, back when you bought vinyl and they came with literature. Um, I remember just looking at it and um, just looking at the words and going, man, who, what does this even mean? You know? Yeah. Yeah. But see, he had help with the lyrics. (laughs) Definitely. Bernie Taupin. 99% of the time. Yeah. And then, you know, and then later Elvis Costello, any, anyone that would be, that I would consider like a wordsmith, you know? That's cool that you really uh, stayed clamped on to that the whole time that you were being a guitar player. Yeah. We can come back to that record if we need to, but, you know, mm-hmm. fucking all-star. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. The sophomore jinx was not a thing for Smash Mouth. We had that in mind for sure. We needed to kill it out of the park next time around and so you know we i don't think any of us really expected to have a record deal with our first album and i didn't feel that that's what um i don't know i didn't feel like that was exactly our sound until walking on the sun was brought into the picture we were just playing you know punk rock you'll never shine if you don't glow hey now you're an all-star get your game on go play hey now you're a rock star Get the show on, get paid And all that matters is gold Only shooting stars break the Yeah, half the songs on the first album are like Fast Punk or Scott and yeah so yeah so the Astro Lounge that's like I'm like okay now I have a podium here you know we need to make this album really count you know and we were already being considered a one hit wonder and so we wanted to definitely prove everyone wrong yeah exactly so did you construct All Star after or is that something you had even before the first record or is that a brand new song it was a brand new song Um, we turned our what we thought was finished album in to Interscope Records and you know Jimmy Iovine and um, Tom Wally flew me down to LA and basically gave me a finger wagging really yeah. so you walk in the room tell me about that <laughs> <laughs> let's see if I can let me see if I can get a Jimmy Iovine would turn the record up all the way and he'd only turn it down long enough to say what the fuck is this and then turn it back up and you can't respond. <laughs> and then he'd be like, where's the fucking chorus in this song? You know, and turn it back up. <clears throat> but he was he was a tough-loving, hardcore guy, you know, for On Us. And, and we needed that, you know. We were new in the biz, and he is someone that you look up to. So what did he tell you? He after? said, "Go." Uh, Tom Wally basically just said, you got, you got your third single and your fourth single and maybe a fifth single, but you don't have your first or second. So get back to the drawing board and... So um, I went back to my garage. Now, how did you feel at when you're walking out? Deflated, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> be rigged. Be I don't know. A little bit the, like, how dare you? Or no, I or wasn't. Really, I definitely didn't say how dare you. No, I mean in your mind. Or I mean, I never know what anyone could have any kind of a different reaction to that. But. Right. No, I I definitely like took what they said, and I'm like, these guys know what they're talking about. Of course they do. You know. Yeah, and if, even if they don't, if they're not behind it, got to yeah. get them behind it. I mean, if 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 it was any other A&R person that I didn't have respect for, I probably would have said, you have no idea what you're talking about, but this is Jamie Iovine and Tom Wally. Yeah. You know, they've, you know, built in, in amazing careers in their lives, and I wanted to try to be one of them, you know? And so, yeah, I went back to the drawing board, and I wrote, um, Then the Morning Comes, 
Um, that one was fast. That one came like that was one of those songs that probably already existed someplace in the universe, and it found me. Right. And um, through, yeah. about twenty minutes, man, that thing was done, and and I started demoing it. Um, All the verses, everything. <laughs> yeah, crazy. Everything. Um, um, I think that one. I'm sure that one and All Star were sort of revised afterwards, but oh, yeah. but the nuts and bolts and you know those things were in place. Um, All Star was a little more uh constructed you know like i listened to the radio i looked at the billboard charts i checked out what was happening and um and went okay maybe the world needs a song like this we also the lyrics came directly from reading fan mail uh paul and i would read fan mail on our on our days off on the road and so the lyrics had already kind of been bouncing around in my head but they didn't have a music to them yet and um so, you know, I'm like, let's do like an affirmation for kids who are having a rough time in school or getting bullied or have shitty parents or shitty siblings or whatever. Let's do a song that sort of lets them know that they're okay, they're going to be okay. And because um, we got a lot of fan mail saying, thank you for helping us through difficult, you know, teen years and stuff, you know, and so yeah. that's what that song's for. Hey, great. Well, good on you. I love the tone on the chorus, the main strumming part. How do you play that? On the, on the chorus? Yeah. Oh. The chorus. It's kind of almost got like a little bit of a Steve Miller take the money and run kind of. I used to always play that at cover bands, and I used to start off the whole thing. I don't mean I don't know if this is if this would meet your approval. <laughs> Wait, something like. Wow, I don't think I can do that. I've ever tried to play the whole thing. Maybe on the acoustic when we did yeah, acoustic stuff. It's perfect. The chords just fit in between the bass notes, and and you always have a cool little bass line going, which I like. Oh yeah, I'm a failed bass player. <laughs> yeah. So, give us two or three. I mean, y- your Instagram's got some wonderful Steve Harwell stories, but you know, I think of him as like the Jim Belushi of the Bay Area rock scene. I never <laughs> met him. Um, I know people play with him, such as yourself. Uh, Sam Eigen mm-hmm. came in for oh, a while. Uh, Kevin Cadigan was doing some stuff. Yep. Third Eye Blind in more recent years. I don't know what they, how far they got with that. Radio sure. Angel. Yeah. I think they right. just did that song. I don't know if they ever did right, another right, right. one, but I liked that. I thought it was pretty cool. Right, right. And Kevin's. Right. I love. I love Kevin. Yeah, he, he's uh, he's actually a good friend of mine from the ninth grade. Like we've oh. rolled. So did you go to, to Palo Alto? Berkeley High. Berkeley. And yeah, me and Kevin. Okay, I know. I'm going to start interviewing you now. So how did you meet Eric? <laughs> Eric, I met through um, through Daniel Adams, mm-hmm. the singer I told you about, yeah. and really through the bass player that had found him uh, that I used to play with in high school named Ari Gorman. Huh. So I really met him through Ari Gorman. He's uh, great. He's played in all kinds of stuff. He played cello on How's It Gonna Be, the Third Eye Blind Oh, uh, maybe I know him. I'm sure. I bet you do. You probably know Ari. Yeah. But... Um, 
I mean, we were we were crossing paths at HOS during that because they had just finished our their record and they were doing some revisions and stuff while we were starting ours. And so, yeah. Yeah, there's always overlap. We were overlapping with Third Eye Blind, of course. And then he went down, Eric went down to L.A. for the long time, had this old Stevie Wonder's piano in that room. Mm-hmm. I think Stevie recorded a lot of stuff in that room on Vine. Yep. I visited him there a couple times. Now he's in Vermont. Uh-huh. So. He, he just built his super studio out of an old airport, or air hangar, uh, airplane hangar. Yeah. So it's, and that's a great story. I, I don't know if I should go on that, but. That's what's that? <laughs> well, so he and Grace Potter bought that. It's right. a 127 acre property and it had a house on it. And then it had, you know, a barn and I'm saying barn with quotations, but, and it had like this long road going through it, like mysterious road, which was actually an, an airstrip. And the house was owned by this very eccentric guy who had cars and, and an airplane or maybe two. And he was hiding them from his wife. Didn't want his wife to know that he had these expensive hobbies and so he would go there and pull his airplane out of that hangar and fly it around and then put it back and go home and maybe say that he was at work all day. But um, he ended up crashing his airplane um, on the property. Not He didn't die, but um, he was under the influence of probably all kinds of stuff. And so the house was sold to them. Interesting. So, and so Eric has made his studio out of that old private secret uh, out of an airplane hanger. hanger that might be the ultimate drum sound right there <laughs> if, yeah, eric will find it yep well yeah tell us more about steve harwell and who was he to you and what, what you loved and some of these funny stories that i maybe you could share one or two of those right well i mean the, the beginning was basically him coming to this place called boswell's in campbell at the prune yard and i used to play there at least once a week um, with yeah. my band, The Gents, The Amateur Gentlemen. Yeah, this is the South Bay of the Bay Area, California. Right. It's a cover band, and that's how I made my living, basically almost all the way through my 20s. And Yeah, uh, so Steve and his group of motley people would, you know, his entourage of just like all these crazy dudes, man, they were like kind of scary, but friendly enough, but, you know. If if you're on their side, you're good, you know, yeah. would come in there and, um, you know, Steve would pull me aside, you know, between sets and just say, hey, I'm starting a band and you're in it. And I'm like, oh, really? I am, huh? He's like, yeah, you're in it. Come on, let's go get some shots, you know, and he'd get me shit faced. And of course, you know, after a few months of him pestering me, I'm like, all right, I guess, you know, maybe I, maybe I just gave in, but because I definitely was afraid of this guy and afraid of all his friends. Um, but I ended up writing my, uh, address on a napkin or something. And next morning he was at my window banging on it. <laughs> You're like, now I'm really afraid. With, with Kevin, our original drummer. And they brought their stuff into my room and set up and they said, come on, let's rock, you know? And so I plugged in and we started playing and I don't think it was good. It was probably God awful for the most part, but there was something these guys had so much motivation and they had, um, they really thought that they were going to do something. And so I just kind of stuck with it. And sure enough, all, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we're, he's coming up with some money, not really sure how, or if I can even talk about that, hmm. but, um, all of a sudden we're in a studio and we do this really crappy recording and, I didn't like it, you know, I was, at that point, I felt like I was a producer myself, you know, I had an eight track in my bedroom and we had a manager, 
he wasn't doing anything for us. We wanted to fire him. And so we went to his house and we said, you're fired. And he's like, what can I do? You know, what do you want me to do? And we were like, give us $10,000 so we can go record with Eric Valentine. So we can actually, someone can capture what we're doing the right way. So you already knew Eric Valentine. We knew of him. Yeah. Um, uh, We knew about T-Ride and we knew about some of the other things that he was doing. And he was just the dude. Everyone thought that we'd never met him. Everyone just knew that he was just this crazy mad scientist secret guy that lived up in Palo Alto that we need or Redwood City that we needed to go record with. And so he came to one of our rehearsals. We played every song that we had. He wrote down, I think, six of them that we could afford to record with him. And um, Walking on the Sun came in later. That one came in later. But once he had heard that song, he's like, okay, now we got something. And so he wanted to do that one. I can't remember how we coughed up a little bit more money. Our manager that we were about to fire gave us more money, maybe. Don't totally remember the, all, all right. the details. But anyway, that's, that's how that whole thing happened. And so, yeah, Steve Harwell just sort of had this vision and this dream. And he had no idea how to sing, really. But he was a born rock star. You know, he, he commanded attention when he walked in the room kind of like Johnny Cash everybody everything changed and he just had that power you know that star power and um with everything he did you know and how were your first shows or were were you doing shows that whole time kind of or we didn't play a lot of shows but um you know we did we weren't completely accepted in the whole music scene in San Jose and so we ended up you know playing more down in Los Angeles yeah. um and only playing shows that really counted so if we were going to go play in front of like some, if we were going to invite some record people to come down, some record company people, we would pay to play the Coconut Teaser or we would pay to play someplace or you know, buy tickets, like pay to play yeah. thing that was going on. Still happening. Yeah. And, um, and try to get the first slot, you know, try to get people to be in their heads, you know. And, um, you know, we just failed and failed and failed and failed. Um, and then we met Carson Daly who was a radio DJ in San Jose at KOME. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah. Um, he had a late shift and probably, he started like probably at the, you know, three o'clock in the morning on a Sunday or something. But then he was very good at that. And he would play us on the radio, but no one was really hearing it because of his shift. And then they ended up moving him to uh, like right around traffic, you know, four o'clock, six yeah. o'clock in the evening. And he would play us even though we didn't have a record deal. He would had this thing called Carson's Pick of the Day, and he would play this song that we had called Nervous in the Alley, kind of a ska punk band or ska punk song. Suddenly we started getting some attention. We started playing some more shows. We played some skateboard demos. We just played kind of cool stuff. Started getting a little more accepted. You know, some of the local bands, arms folded, would look at us and go, these guys, where'd they come from? And why are they getting all these things? Why are they on the radio? Why, 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 why? You know, we've been trying to do this for 15 years. And here these guys come, you know. And uh, Carson Daly um, was moved to the sister station, KROQ, in Los Angeles, and he took us with him, and the next day we had a record deal. A little more in that last sentence. How okay. did that happen? <laughs> he started playing us on his Carson's Pick of the Day, yeah. 
And, uh, you know, Kevin Weatherly, the program director, heard it. And the phones were blowing up. They're like, who are these guys? We didn't have any product out. We, we didn't have anything. We just had a recording. And uh, they loved it, you know. And um, the Interscope came knocking on your door? The next day, after they started playing it, um, Steve and I happened to be in Los Angeles. We were down there, just the two of us, just knocking on doors, trying to get a record deal. And, um, you know, one day we woke up, probably hung over out of our minds. We, I think we went to a birthday party the night before, and we were just hating life, and our phone rang, and just said, get in the shower, get yourself cleaned up, go to this address. No way. And so we went to Interscope, and we met our... Uh, an attorney, our manager, and we were whisked up this elevator into Jimmy Iovine's office, who listened to the album and the songs and everything, and just was just laughing and like going, "This is amazing, you guys. Let's do this. You're not leaving. You're not leaving this building until we have a record deal." That's incredible. I mean, we've all met a lot of very successful musicians who have lived the dream in so many ways, but that's a very specific dream to get the fat deal from the top executive, not just of Interscope, but one of the top music executives on right. planet Earth. You, know? right. you really lived something right there. That's a moment. Yeah, it was incredible. So how did Steve, I got a sense of his personality, handle all the success? Or did I mean, I'm sure he was having a lot of fun in those early days and probably every day of his life. Mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't change much. You know, it's like when I met him, he was a yeah. party animal and... You know, when he passed away, he was a party animal. So he just, that's just the way he was. He was also, you know, had a humongous heart, loved people, loved kids, uh, loved the family, the idea of family. Um, he loved his band, loved all his friends a lot. You know, he just had, you know, some, some demons there towards the end. And, you know, somebody put it in a, a very good way. If you had a relationship with Steve, you, if you had a close relationship with Steve, you also had a falling out with Steve. It's right. sort of just part of the deal, you know? And why is that? Because he's volatile or I don't know what word to use, but... It just depends. You know, I mean, he, you know, he was, like I said, he was a born rock star in every way. And so, you know, he had, um, he was just a very big, big eccentric personality of a person, you know? So it's like, he... Everything was very passionate about everything. And if he loved it, he was passionate about it. If he hated it, passionate about it. If he was pissed, he was passionate about it. Right. If he was sad, he was really fucking sad, you know? And that's, he was just a hundred in any way. What's the funniest thing he ever did on stage or any kind of <laughs> spinal tap moment? The funniest or, thing he ever did on stage. Or just something that stands out, <laughs> some Steve moment for... Yeah, I, you just never knew what was going to happen, but... Um, you know, he, he did love to bring people on stage. He liked bringing kids on stage. Um, I mean, I can tell you some funny things that he did off stage. Oh, yeah, please. <laughs> he, he loved fireworks. Again, oh. very passionate about fireworks. And um, because we don't get fireworks in California, they're hard to get there. When we were in places like Kentucky, right. where you could stop any time of year and buy as many <laughs> fireworks as you possibly wanted. Um, one... One night we just finished a gig and he bought a, you know, a paper shopping bag full of fireworks and we were driving through town, going to the next town and Steve was in the back lounge with the window open shooting bottle rockets out the back window 
you know, running down, going down the highway, you know. <laughs> and um, so we got we got pulled over, and the cops, you know, came to the bus, and they smelled some marijuana. Some of us in the band partook in that like sort of any bus you ever <laughs> stop. I mean, sure. I mean, can you imagine stopping Willie Nelson? Yeah. But <clears throat> so they smelled that. They had us all come out of the bus. They wanted us, and they had us lined up like you know cons, you know, yeah. you know, with their hands on the wall. And your backs to them. Yeah, and um, they were <laughs> actually. Let me back up because this is one of the funny parts about that story is that. Steve's like, we're getting pulled over. Everyone get in your bunks and pretend you're sleeping. <laughs> so, that sounds like the most stressful sleep <laughs> ever. So so everybody, you know, goes in their bunks and, you know, fully clothed with shoes on and everything. In fact, I think I even had a beer with me in my bunk. <laughs> and cops came and they said, well, you can let us on the bus or we can call the dogs. And, and if that's going to happen, you're going to be here for a few hours. And if they find anything, you guys are all going to jail. And What uh, state were you Kentucky. Okay. Yeah. And there, I do believe in the front lounge, there was an ashtray with a still burning joint in it. Wow. So, I mean, we were already kind of screwed. Yeah. So they basically just said, we already got you. So get whatever substances, illegal substances you have on this bus and bring them out here, you know, one at a time, go to your place, get your th- stuff. And uh, so everyone did that. We got a slap on the wrist and a, some sort of misdemeanor, you know, almost like a fix it ticket. You know, you have to... Yeah. Uh, you have to go to court or whatever. I'm sure we got out of it somehow. But um, little did they know that some people had much more than marijuana on that bus. And it wasn't me. <laughs> so yeah, You don't seem like that type. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that was one of the funniest stories. Um, he, yeah. he was a fireworks guy. He, he would go by, the, he loved the big paper bags full of fireworks. And he didn't just light them one by one. What he really liked to do is go to a parking lot and just light the entire bag on fire and just see what happens. So, well, that's, then they're coming any which way. Yeah. They, you got a duck, basically, and he's just laughing his ass off the whole time while things are flying at you, you know? Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I can just totally picture that. <laughs> yeah, he was a lot of fun. Yeah, man. Well, I'm sorry you lost one of your brothers. Now, what? why did you... I mean, you did like, what, how many years your first stint? 11 years or something? Yeah, 94 until uh, 08. I okay, stepped so. out in 08, and that's when I, you know, just I mean, kind of, I was moving on. Because? Well, a few things. You know, the the band, we sort of had developed a brand, a sound, yeah. that was, you know, a lot, had a lot to do with everybody, but, you know, it was the style of music that we were you know, that we focused on, you know, after Walking on the Sun's success, we kind of moved into that more 60s influence thing, which is what I do. Um, And when I met Eric Valentine, found out that that's what he does as well. And so we were sort of a match. Uh, And with Steve's vocal and with the way Eric was able to pull that magic out of Steve's voice and put it on those tapes, you know, that was it for me. You guys had a good trifecta there, man. Yeah. You, you with the songs and him with the rock star persona energy. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, Eric, magic behind the curtain. Right. And so when when Steve and... Just, I believe it was Steve that he just really wanted to move out of that. That wasn't his zone. The 60s thing wasn't yeah. his zone. And he wanted to be a lot more pop, you know, and have a lot more success and 
really broaden that. He wanted to go for, you know, he was he was a business guy. And so he was like, I want to go for hot AC radio. I want to go for adult contemporary, or I want to go for, you know, that market, the pop market, not alternative really, but pop. And I just didn't really catch that from us. I knew that we could be, we could cross over, but I don't, I didn't think that we needed to start with some sort of electronic dance thing to get the point across or, or do country music or, chase whatever sound was happening at the that very particular time and i just felt like i wasn't really needed you know and i didn't want to do that and so i didn't have anything to add to that yeah i never knew if it was like because just the partying got crazy as it does on every vh1 behind the music documentary or if there or so it's interesting to hear some of the reasons maybe more actual creative differences it sounds like it was some creative differences and then just some problems within the organization, you know, that I was hoping to change. And, um, and Steve and I couldn't come to turn, didn't see eye to eye on some of the changes. So you're a kid when you're doing all this stuff, relatively speaking, at least in terms of your experience, in terms of getting huge um, royalties and such. I hope you're happy with the way the paperwork worked out for you when with songs like all-star and stuff i mean obviously i have no idea what the numbers are but Mm -hmm. do you feel like you got the fair shake on all of that stuff back then you know back then i mean we were you know i shared i shared pretty evenly around the table there you know for years and years and years and so the uh, publishing and the writers yeah and so when i did leave i was i was a little like you know some of the people on my team were a little why did you do that you know, because there w- there was some static, you yeah, know, personal. Lennon and McCartney did that because Van Halen did that. <laughs> yeah. You too shares evenly all across the board. You know, it's like, I mean, that's how bands are supposed to stay together is you're supposed to take care of each other. And, um, you know, we just, you know, so some people, whatever, I'm not going to say that anything. Um, I am very happy with yeah. what happened back then. And, you know, these days with, you know, streaming and, things like that you don't sell physical co- physical copies of albums and yeah. more or less but um you know i'm i'm cool with it any quick advice for someone who's signing their first publishing writer's deal without you know obviously well, get a lawyer is probably the number <clears throat> one piece of advice i guess yeah probably or just have one that you can have look at things you know yeah. maybe a friend's parent yeah. <laughs> that's always good to have handy um definitely Learn as much as you can about the business part of it, about publishing and, you know, and also, I mean, it's a completely different world now. So, I mean, I wouldn't know, I I wouldn't, even though I am starting over in the band that I'm in, it's, it's difficult because I didn't pay any attention to the business side of things when I was starting to, you know, when I started this career, I just wanted to do, I just wanted to make music and play, play songs and be on stage and, you know. You and just about all the rest (laughs) of us. Yeah. So let's go back to Dead Language, that song again. There's another great guitar break. Is that something you can play like yeah. without the band? Yeah.
course. Tell me about this guitar. Is it original? Tell, tell people what you're holding there. This one is an American Jazzmaster, Fender Jazzmaster. Um, it's not vintage. I think it's probably late 90s. But I actually had a Fender deal, an endorsement with yeah. them, but I had never seen this color in like their modern colors that they were using. And so I just ended up buying it, even though they were giving me free guitars. Um, this is sort of my main uh, oh, yeah. guitar. This is kind of this familiar to me, yeah. ice blue thing. The P90s. Yeah, this one's blue one right here yeah. I actually built. Um, it had uh, parts. So I always liked the Pelham blue that, that Gibson made, but um, Fender didn't make guitars in that color. And so I ended up buying some, some Gibson Pelham blue spray paint. Um, everything, everything you see in that thing were spare parts from being on tour, except for the body. I bought the body from, I don't know, it's like a Schecter or something. Right. And so, but that's an original neck that I just painted and those are just parts. Cool. I think those are DiMarzio pickups that are in that, and that's um, that's my main Defiant guitar. Right. I was playing it. I think I was playing it one day, and then the next time I went to go play with them, Dickie Barrett's like, "Hey, where's where's the Defiant guitar?" It's like, okay, that's the Defiant. Guitar and I'm now. like, oh, that one. That's that's the one you want. That's the one I want. Yeah. So I ha now I have to use it. <laughs> yeah, you do. The bar seems so long on that guitar. I know, it does seem longer than this one. I may have put the wrong one in it. The bar reaches all the way basically to the three-way switch in the bottom. Yep, you're right. That, that one's longer. nuts. Yeah. Good eye. Oh, well, I don't really play Jazz Masters or Jaguars. I mean, I hope to play have, have one of every guitar someday. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I tell my wife. My wife's like, you have enough, don't you? Don't you have enough guitars? I'm like, never. The correct answer is how many do you need? Yeah. The amount you have plus one. one. Yeah, one for every day of the rest of my life. Yes. <laughs> I dig on the, like, all-star, like, how you got that little tritone kind of thing going, you know, like, well, likes maybe. That's a, you know, it's, you dig into that. It's note. weird because I think so I'm very much into like James Bond, I, I, just the music, you know? And I really wanted to have, I wanted to fit that into a song, but that that is like a, it's minor. And so I'm like, I wonder how I could, it's really yeah, the influence. It's pretty sweet, I love that. I mean, I remember my first Bond movie with Moonraker. Uh -huh. Bond fans might not like that one that much. Maybe now, they love all of them now, probably. Right. And I've, you and me probably, and a lot of people listening, like, you know, music moves us. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is this James Bond? Like, I was a kid. I was like seven, eight years old. And then. I just loved that guitar sound. And then I'm all like, of a wow. sudden there's a boat race. I mean, a boat chase happened or something. And all of a sudden there's that, the keyboard or something. The strings are just kind of going like. Yeah. And then the fucking guitar. And I was like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah the energy, I mean, even like Star Wars, the music is just it's huge. so much. So that is cool, though, how you turn that around into kind of the major key. And yeah, now the secret's out. Oh, really? But you can find yeah. things hiding in plain sight that you can repurpose and, oh, yeah. you know, reimagine and 
make your own. Right. You know, great composers, great composers borrow, great composers repurpose. Yeah. Whatever you want to it's, say. It's, it hasn't all been done, yeah. but, you know, I don't know if there's a chance of that happening. But. I don't think so because it gets recycled, you know, or it gets back, you know, by the time 300 years go around, you know, it's going to come back in a different way. Yeah. Now, I know I'm keeping you here all day, but you got to tell me you are a Northern California person and then have you been there the whole time before you moved to Nashville? When did you move to Nashville? Why did you move to Nashville? Tell us. That's a huge change. Okay. And of course I have, I know like 50 other great guitar players from California right. who have moved and other musicians. Right. So born in Southern California, um, grew up mostly in Northern California, in San Jose, West San Jose. Um, right. Went to Limbrook High School. When I was old enough and had enough money, I moved out of San Jose into Santa Cruz and spent many, many years there. Um, met my wife. Um, I moved back to Los Angeles. Um, she was an actress. And um, we had some children. And fast forward to living in a place called Eagle Rock in Los mm -hmm. Angeles. Uh, and pandemic happened. We were homeschooling our kids. And so it, and I was working at home. So even before the pandemic? Yeah. So a lot of things didn't really change very much for us, except right. for the people changed and the dynamic of, you know, community changed a lot, of course, everywhere worldwide. But we were like, well, I guess we could probably leave and like go travel around a little bit since, you know, none of our friends are going to talk to us at the moment. And, you know, we can't spend time with anybody. You're not allowed to or whatever was going on. So we bought an RV and we got in it and we started driving and we drove for like a year and a half around the country and um, just cruised around and check out different places. And we started discovering that we liked some of the elements of other states uh, more than California. And um, we went to Georgia. We came here to, to Nashville for a minute for like three months and then we took off again started driving around we went back to Los Angeles and by the time we had seen the country a few times we knew that it was time for us to move on well you'd seen it a million times on a tour bus and stuff but yeah it's, but it's different you right. know because a tour bus you go to sleep and you wake up in another city you see that city you probably don't have as much time to really dig into that city you know you know especially if your band yeah. is successful you're doing radio and you know not with your family just press yeah true quality time right so we got to see a lot of the country you know and we just kind of realized that you know we had grown out of california a little bit and we wanted to check something else out um like i mentioned before this is busby's old studio he's an old friend of mine um so this place was up for grabs and so we moved in and we've been here for three years um we just bought another house so we will be leaving this one but um but yeah, we just, we love it here in Tennessee. We love Nashville. People are great. The kids love it here. And that's what really counts. What about from the industry side of things? I mean, obviously there's a, this is Grand Central for songwriters and guitar players and yeah. touring bands these days. My neighbors are Lucinda Williams. These people that live across the street work at Q Prime uh, Management. Um, this guy behind me here, um, J JP Harris is um we're on the same label actually he's a oh, yeah. banjo player. Yeah. Um amazing musician. I mean you 
every single house around here has someone musical in it. And so I didn't have that in Los Angeles, you know, it was totally different vibe there. And so, you know, if I need to borrow some speakers or if I need someone to play banjo on something, or if I want to run something by, um, Lucinda or, (laughs) you know, incredible, that kind of thing It's here. It's right here. It's just amazing. Well, congratulations on that. It's a good fit for you. Tell us about the pedals, but we've got to get a little pedal geekery in here Okay. before we go. Well, first in line, I don't. I normally don't have this Wawa hooked up. I, I don't normally use a Wawa, but I just wanted to... I knew you were going to ask about walking. So. Oh, well, the fuzz tone <laughs> of... All fuzz tones, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is the MXR Timmy. This thing's always on. It just kind of adds a little bit of grit to everything. That's without it. With it, um, uh, this is my Polytune tuner. Yeah, um, And then this pedal right here is a, from a company called um, Brown Audio. I actually wanted to show you. Here's the fuzz. Oh, cool! It is basically modeled after a big muff, but that, but it's got yeah. one extra knob, and that extra knob in the middle um, is the mid range because. Yeah. Big muffs don't have any mid-range. It's all highs and lows and fuzz. and. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. And so that thing actually, you know, you can do a solos with it and stuff. It's pretty cool. Right. Um, Thank but... you. Let's <laughs> oh, oh, put it right here. Um, so I, I went to, I took, a friend of mine is from Australia, and I took him, I knew he loved Crowded House, so I took him to see Crowded House at the Ryman yeah. um, about six months ago. And he brought someone with him that works for this company, Brown Audio, and this right here is a two-stage distortion pedal called the Protein. And so, you know, this right here has, you know, level, drive, and tone. And then this over here has level, drive, and tone. One of them is a lot like a tube screamer. Right. And the other one might be more like a MXR Distortion Plus, the kind of ratty thing. I'm not sure what they sound like right now. That is like, I use that for a gain, obviously. It's like just a little more like saturated and then the other one's a little more in your face. It's yeah, amazing sounding, yeah. Um, this over here, this is my Echo um, of choice at the moment because it's kind of weird. And it's made by Death by Audio and it's called Echo Dream 2. It's pretty cool. It can, it can go really crazy if you turn the feedback up. It's just nuts. Um, this is the tremolo pedal I use. Oh, Boss um, tremolo. Yeah, it's pretty simple. I got it used. I think I found it in a, um, in a box or something. I would have thought you would have had like the tremolo pedal would have been like some. I mean, Boss pedals are great, but yeah. like some kind of fancy handmade. Well, I mean, I use this when I when I'm pl- have to play through backline that doesn't have trim you know like these guys do like i have two amps set up right now those are coming yeah okay in fact that that one's always kind of on 
Yeah, it sounds so great in the stereo. Are you going through that Fender tank too? Or Fender yes. Re- old like a, looks like 60s. I think it, uh, somebody told me it was a 71. 71 mm-hmm. Fender Reverb. What do they call those? It's things? a reverb tank, yeah. But yeah, so this, this guy has a tank built into it already. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the Silvertone Reverb took a crap years ago, and I haven't been able to get it fixed. Yeah. But yeah, so in the meantime... And then also, if I am playing through backline, it doesn't have a reverb. That wasn't even on yet? No, this is the Topanga Spring Reverb. Oh, I see. You just turned off the Fender Tank, which has been on. Right, so so that's dry. It's pretty legit sounding to me. Yeah, that sounds really legit. It's great. Can I tell you a Dick Dale story real quick? Please. So before Smash Mouth was signed, um, I used to play at this club called Tunes, downtown San Jose. And the club owner one night uh, came up to us and he's like, dude, guess who I booked? Dick Dale. And I'm like, oh, I'm so there. He's like, cool, because we need someone to run sound that night. So my buddy, uh, Chris, who was a drummer for my cover band, and I ended up running sound. And the stage was terrible. It was hollow. And here comes Dick Dale with his reverb tanks, you know. And so he, he run those Fender Twin reverbs, but also with a reverb tank. Well, he like he was using basements oh, okay. at that night. Um, so which don't have their their bass amps. And so they, he was yeah. running the reverb yeah. tanks through the basements. He had two of them, and they're blonde. They're beautiful. And um, but the drum, every time the guy was playing the drums, the reverb tanks would shake around. Yeah, which sounds kidding. a lot like. Yeah. And so. Yeah. Excellent technique there, by the way, Greg. You just, <laughs> I, nailed, use it, I use it to actually kick yes. that thing and make it sound like that. But he couldn't get through. He couldn't have his reverb sitting on the stage because the drums were making a rattle. And so um, Chris Racine, the drummer guy that I was just telling you about, got an old mic cable and wrapped it around a light truss and hoisted, you know, tied the other end to that. And, from the handle. Yeah, and hung it. And Dick Dale's like, holy shit, man, I've been doing this for 50 years and I never <laughs> thought of that. And so I think that's what he does now. Oh. <laughs> so we taught Dick Dale, you know, Oh yeah. a new trick. Yeah, he's gone now, I think. Yeah. Yeah, shit. Yeah, I saw him once or twice. Yeah. That's a, that is a quite a visual, man. Right. <laughs> Hanging the reverb tanks. I just remember I was, you know, at, we were, we were, I kept going to the front row just to go yeah. get, be close to him, you know, while, while we were, while he was playing and we were running sound and it, his, he had these white picks and he was going so fast that it just looked like the picks were like snowing, you know, it was like just all this white dust was coming off, oh, you know? See. Yeah, that's cool. So. All right. Well, you want to play one last thing? What should we play out? <laughs>
I didn't realize that was going on. You're channeling the sound, man. You're, you're keeping it alive. That was cool. Thanks for me today, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm glad we finally got to do this, and welcome to Nashville, Music City. I hope the yeah. shows are good. And there, yeah, thank you. So they're all three done. So with three in a row, and now back on the plane tomorrow morning. Yeah, home. Six. Yeah, back to California. But what city are you living in? L.A. Oh, okay. But yeah, there's the, that place where we played with the Nashville Symphony unbelievable building Schirmer, i haven't been inside that Schirmerhorn. yeah Schirmerhorn symphony hall i haven't been in there yet yeah go next time you can and um the acoustics are unbelievable really well we were bringing a little too much thunder mm-hmm. because a rock band is still a hundred times louder than the loudest bit an orchestra can do probably. yeah <laughs> but it's it, yeah it's, that is a beautiful spot that's a, you know nashville is definitely cosmopolitan place you know stuff right. like that right there all like within like a one mile radius it's pretty nuts nothing like it very cool thank you man keep it alive till you're 95 new guitar is safe